Welcome to Understanding the Law. Your host for the program is Peter Lamont. Mr. Lamont is a business and personal law attorney and the principal of the law offices of Peter J. Lamont. The firm has offices in New Jersey, New York, Colorado, Puerto Rico, and affiliated offices throughout the country. Understanding the Law is a weekly radio broadcast discussing a variety of legal topics that affect our listeners. Please note that this broadcast does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship with any of our listeners. As always, we welcome calls from our listeners. If you wish to discuss any of today's topics, please call our switchboard at 347-855-8831. And now, your host, Peter Lamont. Well, welcome to this edition of Understanding the Law. Thank you all for joining us today. We are very happy to have with us a special guest. We have Dr. David Croman, uh, and he is working out of the People for Animals um, business, and, and he'll explain that company to you. Uh, but we're very happy to have him with us. So we're going to get uh, introduced to him. He's going to tell us a bit about his practice. We're going to get into some issues concerning um, veterinarians and, and the law. And then we're going to finish up with talking about uh, owners and how uh, owners have obvious obligations, what they might be, and uh, what information you might need to know if you are a pet owner. So before we introduce Dr. Croman, I'd like to just uh, thank our sponsor for today's show, MS Psychotherapy and Counseling. They have offices throughout the metropolitan area. Uh, they work with troubled uh, teens and um, older individuals uh, on a variety of, of uh, psychological issues and problems and drug, uh, drug use. Uh, so we're thankful that they have uh, sponsored us today. If you do have any questions and you'd like to speak to somebody at MS, you can give them a call at 973-341-9869. So, Dr. Croman, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for having me, Peter. So, um, as far as... as Dr. Croman uh, goes. He is a 1999 graduate of the University of Pennsylvania School of Veterinary Medicine and is currently the Director of Veterinarian Services at People for Animals. Um, and prior to that, he had worked in private practice in the state of New Jersey for, uh, I think, uh, six years. Is that right, David? Yes, that's correct. So you obviously have a love for animals, and this this profession is something that uh, you must have a, a great deal of passion for. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, the vast majority, uh, almost everyone I know in the profession, uh, you could say that about, and that's why they get into it in the first place. Well, if you would, give us a little background about yourself, uh, how you went from private practice uh, to People for Animals, which is a nonprofit organization. So give exactly. us a little background about it. <laughs> Okay, guys, come on. Um, all right, um, I, I was in non, uh, I was in uh, small animal practice for, uh, as you said, uh, six years at two different places uh, in North Jersey. Uh, both, um, you know, relatively small practices, which are about typical uh, unless you go to a specialty hospital. Uh, two or three doctors uh, in each uh, in each practice, uh, uh, and uh, it, it was the best thing for me right out of school. Uh, you get exposed to the broadest uh, variety of cases, uh, everything from 
wellness puppy visits to uh, uh, sick visits, emergency visits, um, uh, geriatric and chronic cases, and in and, and the end uh, of the game, uh, euthanasia at the end of the day. Uh, in most cases, uh, most people don't wait uh, for an animal to die of natural causes because they want to minimize its, uh, its uh, bad times at the end. So um, uh, anyway, uh, I did that for a number of years, uh, and uh, uh, I'm very glad that I did. Uh, I think it... Uh, uh, made me a very well-rounded vet, but after a while, uh, some of the medicine cases and, and the uh, uh, euthanasias and managing chronic uh, ill patients, uh, I, I guess, I don't know, you could say it got a little heavy for me, uh, and uh, I was looking for something that uh, might work better for me, uh, and I uh, actually took a little bit of time off uh, a couple of months to kind of reevaluate how I wanted to practice medicine, and uh, I ended up volunteering at a local shelter uh, in Maplewood, which had a very small surgical suite, which they were just getting up and running. And uh, I went in there and started doing some spays and neuters for the animals that were in the shelter uh, awaiting adoption. And uh, given it was a small place, they only used the surgery suite uh, once a week. And I was doing it every other week and, and on, the, on Wednesdays. And on the Wednesday that I wasn't doing it, a different vet was doing it. And uh, Dr. Faith Perrin, uh, and she is uh, one of the most experienced vets at People for Animals, and I ended up talking to her uh, about things, and uh, I realized, hey, this is something uh, I might want to do full-time, so I, I uh, ended up joining People for Animals, uh, and uh, I've been there ever since, and, and now I am the director of, uh, of veterinary services, which means that I'm the head vet there. It doesn't mean I own the facility or anything like that. Um, I guess the way to think about it is uh, typically when you go to your uh, regular full-service private vet, it's, it's owned. It's, it's a business, and, and it has an owner, and uh, they're doing it for profit. Um, we're a nonprofit, so uh, in kind of the same model that most human hospitals are, uh, most human hospitals are nonprofits, actually, and they don't have an owner, and they're run by a board of directors, and that's how we are. So uh, uh, there is no owner. It's run by a board of directors. Um, there are heads of, of the different departments, and I'm the head of that. So. Okay, great. Uh, yeah. and, and by the way, we are the largest spay and neuter facility in all of New Jersey. We do about 20,000 procedures a year. Uh, we have 10 vets on staff. We have a small second location in Robbinsville in South Jersey, but our main facility is in Hillside, Hillside, New Jersey. And the website is PFA, P is in uh, Peter, F is in Frank, A is in Apple, PFA online. Org. All right, let's talk a little bit more about some of the, uh, the innovative things that People for Animals has, have done uh, for pet owners because uh, there's, a, there's a laundry list of things that the organization has come up with that are very innovative and unique, and I'd like to make uh, our listeners aware of some of them. In particular, you have a neuter scooter program. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, yeah. That's uh, a very exciting program. We actually operate it in... Uh, uh, a couple of different capacities. Um, uh, we, when I started at People for Animals, we were doing uh, about five years ago. We were doing about maybe 6,000 procedures a year, and now we're doing over 20,000. So uh, yeah, we we have expanded uh, quite rapidly, and, and I would say uh, uh, we're we're, real, we're very happy with it. And it's part of our mission 
our mission is to, uh, to, to help with the pet overpopulation problem. So however we can do that uh, and get to the people and uh, help uh, sterilize animals that are going to otherwise breed litters that are going to end up in shelters a lot of the time and uh, be euthanized, you know, we're trying to, to minimize that. Um, and I wish I could show you this graph on the radio, but uh, uh, there's a great graph uh, that shows over the last five years as our uh, uh, spay and neuter volume has increased uh, from 6,000 procedures a year to over 20,000 that the uh, amount of intakes in the animal shelters, the number of stray uh, uh, animals uh, and, uh, you know, unwanted litters that end up getting given up and so forth uh, and end up in shelters has, has dropped. So there's an inverse relationship between the number of procedures we do and the basic crowdedness, uh, for lack of a better word, uh, at the shelter. So uh, we're very help, uh, happy that that's helping eliminate the problems. Now, to answer your question about the scooter, um, we got a, gra uh, a grant from PetSmart Charities, actually. Uh, they donated uh, a van. We already had uh, a van, and now we have a third van. Uh, and what we do is, um, uh, in the uh, uh, PetSmart um, uh, Charities um, uh, situation, we actually got a van donated, and we actually uh, work also with Petco. And um, we go to all the pet, uh, Petco locations in New Jersey. Uh, on a regular basis, and if you don't live near enough to our facility to conveniently drop off your animal for spay and neuter and pick it up again at the end of the day because they don't stay overnight, uh, you can go to your local Petco and um, uh, drop it off at a certain time, uh, and there's a schedule, so if it's Totoa or Paramus or wherever the uh, Petco may be, you know, there's a certain day of the week or depending on how busy that PECO is, it might be once a month, it might be once a week, it might be once every two weeks, but uh, you can drop off your animal there and then pick it up at the end of the day and we'll actually uh, chauffeur it both ways so you don't actually come to our facility. Uh, so that's been great for us, it's been great for our customers, it, uh, um, uh, it keeps them from having to drive so much and, and it just tends to work out very well. Um, we also use the scooters to uh, go to local animal shelters. Um, uh, there's so many to list, uh, I, I couldn't even, just <laughs> dozens of them, uh, and private groups sometimes, um, uh, animal shelters, and, uh, um, and uh, we go and pick up on a regular basis, pick up animals that are in the shelter that are not sterilized, and, and we bring them and, um, you know, alter them and bring them back to the shelter at the end of the day. So, um, uh, and in some cases, we'll also actually send a scooter to a trapper. Uh, some people, uh, for better or for worse, um, try to deal with the uh, stray cat problems and the backyard cats that are kind of almost, you know, unhandleable. They have to be trapped like a raccoon because they're totally non-domestic and uh, uh, they breed and they kill songbirds and uh, create a lot of problems, uh, vectors for rabies and other things. So uh, we do try to eliminate that problem also. And, and if people are going to trap and bring animals in, uh, we will uh, um, alter those animals as well. So All right. uh, we use the scooter a lot of different ways. Plus, we're open to the public so people can come in and just bring their animals as well. It's, it's an excellent uh, program, and it certainly is something that's, uh, that's unique. So uh, that's, that's something that I think people should check out. You can actually... Uh, learn more about that right from their website, uh, which Dr. Croman gave out before, pfaonline.org. Uh, so if you have questions or inquiries or you want to learn more about that program, you can go right onto their website and click on the uh, Click to Learn More button, and then you can have, uh, have your questions answered. 
Now, I want to touch on something that you mentioned a little bit oh, earlier. Oh, Peter. Um, yes. Uh, th- there was one other thing uh, we didn't discuss would come up, but uh, uh, it's relatively new. Um, we, we also are a teaching hospital, um, and we have a relationship with the um, University of Pennsylvania, uh, Tufts, Cornell, uh, and usually it's only one student at a time most of the time, but we do have students that rotate through, uh, and, and we're basically uh, serving as instructors for those students uh, to, to uh, learn about spay and neuter. Uh, it's, uh, it's a great opportunity to help uh, contact directly with the students and give them surgical experience, which they wouldn't be able to get in vet school. Uh, and uh, it's actually a little bit of a burden for us, to be honest, uh, because uh, um, it takes us a lot more time to instruct students than it would be to have our surgeons do everything. And it ends up being such a small percentage of our overall volume uh, that, uh, you know, 90, 99.4%, I think it is, of the surgery is done at our facility or done by our regular staff surgeons. But that 0.6% uh, can be done by students. But when it is done by a student, we have a, a vet one-on-one hovering over them, watching everything they do and uh, gloved in at the same time so uh, and assisting them. So uh, uh, we, we uh, feel that there is uh, zero uh, additional risk to having a student there because we have a one-on-one vet there with them. Uh, right. And also, if a client comes into our facility and they do not want a student to be the surgeon, even under those circumstances, they can just opt out, and uh, we will make sure that they're that you're not part of that 0.6% uh, if you don't want a student operating on your pet. But we are a teaching hospital, and we do work with the vet schools. All right. Well, that that even uh, further is what I was I was going to bring up next, which is you mentioned earlier terms and scenarios and situations that you were experiencing as you transitioned from your private practice into uh, this not-for-profit organization. And one of them, you had said that, you know, you were, you were trying to get over dealing with a lot of the, the darker side, unfortunately, loss and death of animals. And you were using terms and talking about things, just as you did right now about a teaching hospital, that seem extremely um, familiar to us because that's what happens with humans. And a lot of the questions that we received prior to today's show from our Facebook uh, viewers and and fans of the show deal with trying to understand how a vet is is a medical doctor. You know, a lot of the people say, oh, well, a vet's more like a service provider. They're not a real doctor. But that's not necessarily true, is it? Uh, Not at all. Um, It's, uh, I mean, getting into vet school is generally considered more difficult than getting into human medical school uh, because of the supply and demand of the, of the available spaces. There's uh, 26 or 27 vet schools uh, now in the country uh, and uh, a couple in the Caribbean and some in Europe, and uh, they're very competitive to get into. Uh, so, um, uh, I, I, And the prerequisites to get into uh, veterinary school uh, in terms of coursework and undergraduate work are, are quite similar to that of human medicine, almost identical. You have to take all the same undergraduate organic chemistry and general chemistry and physics and biology and so forth. So uh, then at the end of the day, you're just applying to a more competitive program if you decide to go to veterinary school. So uh, um, so in that way, it is a more difficult program. Um, 
uh, I guess the only difference in training other than the fact that you're working on animals and uh, in many ways it's, it's a similar program, but uh, there is no required internship or residency after you graduate. So at the end of four years of veterinary school, uh, some people go on to internships and residencies, but the majority of, of the students just go directly into practice, whereas in human medicine, you are practicing as an intern, you know, when you graduate, but, but it's a required part of the program. You're not really a regular full-fledged doctor, I guess, so to speak. I mean, you are. You're a licensed uh, physician and practicing as an intern, but it's required, and it's not in veterinary medicine. Uh, so, um, but yeah, we hear that from time to time. Oh, you're not a real doctor. Or you're just a vet. And I think it's just more of the perception of the fact that you're working on animals, uh, you know, uh, as opposed to people more so than, than, than a... Uh, um, uh, a uh, misunderstanding on the public standpoint of uh, of the amount of work and expertise required. I, I think people appreciate uh, uh, that that it is a real medical profession, and when they say that kind of comment, you know, you're not a real doctor or something, they're just basically and uh, not very eloquently saying that you're not a human doctor. But um, right. and that's my take on it. I, I never felt there was any problem with that. And you deal with with some of the same issues. So, for example, where a a you know medical doctor who treats uh, you know people, they have to struggle with the loss of their patient and then advising the family. Vets do the same thing. You you have the same experiences, the same issues, the same stresses concerning surgeries that human doctors have. You've got the same or similar ethical obligations and obligations to your to your patients and clients. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, God, I, I, that's such an open-ended uh, question um, that uh, I don't even know where to take it, but uh, these kinds of issues happen all the time. Uh, I, I think, um, uh, you know, that's always try to do their best to do the right thing. Um, and uh, I think as long as your compassion and, and being on the same page uh, with a, not only uh, you know, there's two people to deal with, by the way. There's two ends of every leash, um, you know, when you're uh, dealing with veterinary medicine. So, uh, uh, you know, you have to, uh, in most of your communication is obviously through the owner. Uh, so you do uh, have those issues. You know, you have to do what's best for the animal, but you have to do it within the constraints of what the owner wants. Um, very often, for better or for worse, what the owner can afford. Um, has a direct bearing on the type of care and procedures that they're going to do, I guess, in human medicine, too. Uh, insurance, uh, although available in the veterinary uh, profession, uh, only comprises, you know, about 1% or 2%, I would say, of, uh, of owners. So, you know, 98 or 99% of uh, pet owners are paying out of pocket, and that changes the metric sometimes of what they're willing to do, whereas many, you know, or most humans uh, these days, uh, you know, have, have some type of insurance, especially with the new health care law. So, uh, you know, they have more resources available. So, uh, um, and, uh, of course, even though you have to deal with the owner and the patient, you know, in, uh, in a veterinary setting, in a human setting, you not only have to deal with the patient, but the family and so forth. So uh, I guess in those ways it's similar because there are always multiple people to deal with, uh, humans to deal with, even in the veterinary profession in any given case. Uh, but like I started to say, you know, the main thing is just understanding your client, understanding your patient, uh, being compassionate, and making sure that you have good communication, uh, which is probably the most important thing in, in, uh, in many professions, including this one. If you can communicate uh, the importance and needs uh, of 
whatever procedure is being done appropriately to your client, then you're going to have a good relationship with them and a good outcome even even when things don't go well. Uh, and if you can't communicate properly, then people aren't going to be happy. So uh, uh, we think that's incredibly important, and we try to do our very best, even in our high-volume setting. Uh, when needed, we will always take the time to work one-on-one with anybody about any unusual case. So. Right, and I, I think that um, you know, the idea that you started to make earlier uh, concerning those people that understand what you're doing, um, and when they say that you're not a real doctor, it's primarily – that, that you're not a human doctor. I think also that the majority of pet owners have a great deal of respect for vets because whether it's a, a routine checkup or something more serious, you know, these animals, these, these pet owners, they love their animals. They love them, and um, to have someone take care of them that they feel comfortable with is extremely important. So I think a lot of the comments that we receive concerning, well, you know, vets aren't real doctors. I think that that stems from people that might not have animals and don't understand um, how to care for an animal and what benefits a vet can can provide. So I think uh, I think that's probably a fair statement. Do you agree? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I, I, I do, I do, um, because they don't have the benefit of having been to the vet's office and understanding that it is uh, a medical uh, uh, profession, even though obviously it is. Uh, you, you know, without a People have been to the doctor, you know, <laughs> many times over the course of their life, and they know what that's about. But if you don't, if you have never been a pet owner and you've never been to the vet's office, and you don't really, uh, you might not be in a position to appreciate it uh, as a medical profession in its own right. Uh, yep. In that way, so I think you're right. Yeah. All right. So I want to illustrate something uh, that's been in the news recently, and that it kind of, um, I think punctuates what we're talking about with respect to the fact that vets are real doctors. They face the same or similar scenarios that human doctors face, and there's the same legal and ethical obligations that they must comply with in the practice of medicine. And that stems from this story out of uh, the Bronx. There's a doctor, Dr. Shirley Koshy. She's a veterinarian, and she was... um, working out of the Bronx at a uh, facility called Gentle Hands. She had been there for years and was very well liked by many of her, her patients and their owners. And what happened recently is that uh, a person who rescued a cat in the park, stray cat, brought this cat into Dr. Koshi, and the cat needed serious medical attention. The cat did not have any identifiable tags. It was a stray. And so Dr. Koshi took care of the animal. And at one point when the animal was recovering, the rescuer came back to uh, the facility and demanded that Dr. Koshi return the cat to her. And the doctor refused because it wasn't her cat. She had reservations about what was legally and ethically proper to do since this isn't the cat's owner. And ultimately, the rescuer sues the doctor. And in February of this year, the doctor apparently committed suicide as a result of it. And when her staff was interviewed, they all talked about this um, sort of downward spiral that she entered after being sued. 
And, and this case really, I think, illustrates a lot of the things that we're talking about. I want to expand upon that. First of all, uh, Dr. Croman, when we're talking about a case like this, here you have a stray cat who's brought in by a rescuer, and then the rescuer demands the cat back. Do you think that you know, Dr. Koshi not returning the cat was the proper thing to do? Are there some sort of ethical guidelines that you look to? What would you have done in that scenario? What do you think about what she did by not returning the cat? Um, you know, I, the, I, I was I completely, I am unfamiliar with the case other than what you just told me. So um, uh, personally, uh, I consider, and I think every vet that I know uh, considers, uh, the, the person that brings the animal in for treatment to be the owner unless we're told otherwise um, at the time they're bringing in. Every once in a while we'll have someone say, hey, uh, you know, my uh, friend or my partner or whatever has to be at work today and I'm bringing in Fluffy, you know, to be spayed or neutered or get her shots or uh, whatever it may be. And that's perfectly fine uh, as long as we have the name and address of the owner. And the same is actually considered true uh, from our perspective with uh, trappers and rescuers. Uh, they're the de facto owner because they're the ones that have assumed uh, care of the cat and are bringing it in for treatment. Uh, and I believe that only the owner can do that uh, or a representative of the owner. So uh, uh, if someone's bringing an animal in for treatment, um, you know, we have to use our best uh, uh, resources to, uh, to, to, to try to, uh, um, you know, figure that's true. And usually it's just a matter of trust. I mean, we don't say, okay, what's this... Uh, um, you know, uh, dog or cat's uh, social security number, you know, and let's, right. uh, you know, make sure it's yours and, and have a mini investigation and start calling your neighbors and uh, and demand photos of them uh, in your living room before we're going to treat it. Um, you know, I mean, we have to assume that people are, are doing the right thing uh, and, and bringing in animals that really are theirs. Um, and uh, plus, in New Jersey, animals are uh, considered physical property. Uh, you know, they're not uh, they're not really regulated in the same way that, that uh, people are in terms of protections, but uh, Correct. it doesn't yeah. mean that we don't strive for the same standard. It just means or a similar standard, but uh, uh, but, but legally uh, they are treated differently uh, from a legal standpoint, not not from our standpoint. But uh, getting into back to this refusing to give the animal back uh, from a rescuer, um, you know. Um, I, I, I can't understand why someone would refuse to give an animal back. The only um, situation where I would consider keeping an animal would be if the person came in to surrender the animal. Um, they said, look, uh, um, you know, uh, the reason why he looks so bad is because I can't take care of him. Uh, he's so matted and has mange and so forth and uh, moving to a, a new apartment building where they're not going to allow him or, or something like that or I'm moving in with uh, an elderly parent who's allergic or something like that and uh, I want to surrender him. Uh, in, in a situation like that, then we would have a written, uh, you know, surrender, and we would they would have to put in writing that they're surrendering the animal to us, uh, uh, and now it's ours, um, and we would uh, do our best to find it a good home. Um, we're not usually in that business, right, hey, Rocky? Okay, but uh, every once in a while, especially in private practice, you end up in that position and you take it in. But uh, I can't imagine just taking an animal in and and refusing to give it back where an owner hasn't uh, signed over ownership. So, you know, yeah, now, that seems you know, a little odd. Yeah, it's, it's certainly um, a unique circumstance, but what's not unique, and this also goes back to the fact that you are real doctors with real obligations, is that this woman found herself 
a defendant in a lawsuit. And just like doctors that treat humans end up on the, uh, on the bad end of a malpractice suit, that's something that, that vets have to worry about too. I mean, you're faced with people who are going to sue you for the loss of their patient the same way that, uh, that human doctors do. Um, so, so, you know, that fear, that specter of a lawsuit is out there and does suggest that, you know, everyone who thinks you're not real doctors is absolutely wrong. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It is unfortunate, um, as is, it in, uh, is the case in human medicine, that, that you do have to uh, practice under, under that, uh, uh, you know, sort of Damocles or whatever you want to call it, that, that, that constant uh, thing over your head that, 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 you know, that there could be a problem and, uh, you know, uh, there are potentially legal uh, uh, issues sometimes with, with things. Um, uh, but, um, again, you just do your best and you do your best practice and, and that's the way it is. What, what I don't like, though, is uh, uh, sort of mirroring the model uh, of, you know, it, it, I do feel that in veterinary medicine uh, as a practitioner, uh, I have the leeway to uh, uh, use more common sense and not have to, um, uh, for lack of a better word, cover my butt and, and run right. every test in the book uh, just to, 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 to prevent the lawsuit. Um, you know, particularly since clients are paying out of pocket and, and they don't necessarily want it. Um, you know, I might explain, hey, we could do, you know, your, your uh, uh, for example, a dog comes in vomiting or something and a uh, young, healthy dog. Uh, you could do, you know, belly x-rays and uh, uh, blood tests and, uh, you know, look for, uh, you know, there's a, run a fecal test and so forth and, uh, uh, you know, I'll put it on an IV if you think it's mildly dehydrated or something like that and really, uh, you know, uh, work it up uh, to the hilt. Or you could... Uh, if it's the first time around and the animal seems very stable, you might not know the reason why it's vomiting, uh, but uh, you could treat it, um, what we say, empirically, or just based on your best clinical judgment with uh, uh, some uh, antiemetics and uh, uh, some gastroprotectants and maybe uh, give it some subcutaneous fluids or something and, uh, you know, and see how it does. And, and if it worsens, then you could run all those other tests if you need to. And, and most people, I think, appreciate a sort of stepwise reasonable approach depending on the severity of the case. Uh, and, and I think that that's in everyone's interest to, to, to practice that way, and it's the way I try to practice. But uh, I know uh, in human medicine you go in sometimes and they just run all those tests from the start, uh, no matter how fruitful the results may be, just because they really want to cover all the bases and uh, protect themselves from a potential lawsuit in case you end up being one of those fluke cases that they miss something. They want to be able to show that they couldn't possibly have missed anything. So uh, yeah, and that's, it's medicine. I think, yeah. I think that's part of the problem with, with the legal system today, and I think that that's why tort reform is so important because I think the approach that you're taking with respect to animals is the approach that, that more doctors should take. You know, the idea of having to, to protect yourself all the time, I think, often, often clouds your judgment because you're so worried about being sued that I think it, it, it cuts into some of your either creative thinking or um, more you know, step-by-step -step handling of things, you know, what, what's rational and reasonable versus, all right, what do I have to check off my checklist to make sure that I don't get sued? And I think that that's unfortunate right. that that's where we are right now. Right, absolutely, absolutely. And not only does it cloud your judgment in many cases, but not all tests are, are black and white in terms of um, identifying the underlying problem. Sometimes you, you might run a test that's related to a medical case and find something abnormal, but that doesn't mean that that abnormal result has anything to do with your medical case. 
Um, right. You know, you could uh, you could find an incidental, for example, you could test the dog for Lyme disease and it might come back positive in a snap test. It could mean that the dog had recovered from Lyme disease and still has antibodies in its system and that, that has no bearing on, on why it's sick today uh, for completely unrelated reasons. But um, a lot of times, uh, you know, tests are run, uh, abnormal results are found, and then doctors treat the tests rather than the patient. And it can actually be confusing to the doctor uh, to know exactly how to interpret certain tests because they don't always have a bearing on, on the patient's, uh, you know, uh, issue at hand. Um, so uh, it's, it's, I sometimes say the more tests you run, the more problems you find, and then the more problems you find, the more tests you want to run, and it's a vicious cycle, and it doesn't right. always, um, you know, allow you just to just go forward and use your best clinical judgment and do things stepwise the way I, I mentioned initially, you know. That makes sense. All right, uh, moving along, I want to talk about, I want to get your opinion on, on another case. <clears throat> this one is out of Austin, Texas, and this involves a um, a veterinarian who sort of specializes in dealing with rescue animals. And she's uh, very active in the no-kill arena. Uh, she's a very big proponent of, of obviously not euthanizing animals and trying to do all you can to protect them, which is very, uh, very honorable. Uh, but right now she's facing a two-year suspension because she received a number of formal complaints um, by her, her clients saying that she offered and treated animals without actually seeing them. So she'd call in a prescription or she'd diagnose something over the phone and she didn't actually see the animal. Or uh, other complaints are that she would allow a tech to perform the surgery. And, you know, this quite clearly differs from what you were talking about earlier where you mentioned that you have doctors who are coming in and and they're learning and and it's a teaching hospital that's different than having a tech perform a surgery that would be the equivalent yeah, by the way, of having Peter, a we had to get the law changed um for that uh it's uh, uh it was signed into Christie last august 9th and um uh it's called s2504 and it was an exemption for students to allow for this specifically so uh uh 46 other states already had a similar exemption but new jersey was one of the four that didn't uh, so before we were allowed to even offer that, we we had uh, uh, externs prior to, to August 9th, uh, but they weren't allowed to do anything other than observe uh, because the law didn't permit it. So uh, uh, we decided to uh, move forward and hope uh, that New Jersey would join the other 46 states. And and uh, Christy, uh, you know, signed our bill, and uh, and now it is law uh, S2504. So so that is uh, how it can be done. But there are no circumstances where a tech in any state can perform surgery, as far as I'm aware. Uh, so, yeah. So, what's your what's your take on this this doctor from Austin? I mean, she's big in 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 the industry out there, right? She's well known. She's saving pets' lives all the time, and now she's got these complaints. So, assume for a minute, for the purposes of our discussion, that these allegations are true that she had a tech perform surgery and that she was treating animals without actually seeing them. What would you think about that? What do you think about that? Well, generally that would be considered um, inappropriate uh, because, um, uh, you know, legally speaking and just from reasonableness speaking, you need to have a, a VCPR, a veterinary client-patient relationship uh, with the client and with the animal and with you, uh, which means generally implies that you've actually seen the animal. 
Um, so you definitely have to have a relationship and an understanding uh, of the animal and, and uh, uh, you know, uh, within the scope necessary to perform whatever you're doing. Now, I'm not a legal expert. That's your area. But I, I guess, you know, there could, we, you know, we would never treat an animal without having seen it. Um, but um, I could envision potentially, you know, a, a lengthy telephone consult, uh, and, and maybe uh, if they were sending some, uh, uh, you know, with the technology we have, some images or something of, uh, hey, this is Fluffy's rash, and uh, you know, I can tell you how it happened, and uh, it happens every year at this time of year. Um, you know, it's, it seems like a seasonal allergy. I'm going to send you a picture of it, um, and, and you, uh, you know, maybe forward the records or something over online, and and they're. Viewed uh, if, the, if there's a previous history that they can send and uh, something like that, and I guess that there, there for certain situations uh, in, in minor things, I guess there could be you know it could be argued potentially that you have established a, a veterinary client-patient relationship without having seen the animal, uh, and uh, um, but uh, and perhaps that's what this uh, this uh, veterinarian was trying to do because I. I would think that you know she was you know at least getting some kind of background and having a, a detailed uh, you know history and consult with the client over the phone at least uh, uh, and had some type of information. But uh, um, you know obviously if you're doing surgery or, or uh, treating a heart condition or you know there's just certain things that lend themselves to, to necessarily having to have hands on on the patient and, and certain minor things there might be potentially some kind of things that could be treated without having your hands physically on the animal. Uh, right. A radiologist uh, these days can, can uh, uh, have, have an image scanned of, of, uh, on a referral and, and do it from halfway around the country and make a diagnosis and suggest treatment based on that without having touched the human patient. Uh, right. So, uh, you know, uh, I, I could see uh, situations where, where, where that could potentially happen, but... Uh, uh, generally speaking, I think you want to have examined the animal. And you know, if I if I get a you know eczema on the back of my hand and I had it last year and I'm out of skin cream, you know, I could call my dermatologist and get a refill and tell him it's flaring up again, and he doesn't need to see me necessarily if he knows my history and so forth. So, uh, not everything requires an in-visit office, you know, patient all the time. But I don't know if she's ever seen any of these patients even in the past at once. You know, so yeah, yep, hard to say. Hard to say, but I think the radiologist example is a good example. There are there are places for telemedicine, and, and things can be done over the phone these days. And uh, as long as there is a veterinary client-patient relationship, and I guess that's that would need to be determined if she really had that or not. Yeah, that's uh, right. I don't know if she had that. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, thank you for uh, your opinion on those those two cases. You know, there it's it's interesting. You see a lot of it out there, and I think people tend to gloss over. Um, those sorts of legal issues because, like, like I said, it just you know the people's focus, unless you're a pet owner, is on uh, human care. But obviously, there's a lot out there, and, and if you are a pet owner, um, a lot of the stories, a lot of the lawsuits that are out there are very, very interesting. So I'd, uh, I'd look at look at them. I want to move into something else now. I want to talk about owners and what advice and information you can offer to owners. And I want to talk about two primary points. Uh, the first point I want to talk about is how an owner chooses the right vet. And the second point that I want to get into deals with some legal obligations. So let's start with number one. What advice can you offer to people about choosing the right vet? That is 
I was hoping you weren't going to ask me that, Peter, because that is one of the most difficult questions um, you know, I have. I mean, there are specific vets in, in, in our area, since we are not a full-service practice uh, uh, at People for Animals. We, we do have a wellness clinic, by the way, where people can come in uh, for shots and heartworm testing for dogs and leukemia testing for cats and uh, puppy visits, and, you know, but we won't treat even an eye infection or an ear infection uh, you know, or anything like that. Um, you know, we refer all those cases to full-service vets that uh, provide you know, full services. Um, we, the wellness clinic is, you know, uh, within the scope of our mission in that it makes things affordable so people can uh, uh, keep their pets and, and, and you know, reduce, uh, you know, the, the problems uh, associated with having too many unowned pets. But um, uh, the, um, uh, I'm sorry, could you lead me back where I was going here? I kind of went on a little sidebar here, a little bit, Peter. Yeah, so I mean, it's it is yeah. it's definitely difficult to to decide, you know, how you would say, oh, yeah, oh yeah, choose we, this we, vet. Okay, I'm sorry. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, the question I was hoping you weren't going to ask me. Excuse right. me. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so there are vets that we will um, uh, refer people to specifically that we have a history of working with. But if someone lives outside our area, or someone let's say comes and brings an animal from the neuter scooter or something like that, and they live in uh, a part of the state where I uh, uh, typically uh, don't have uh, a lot of uh, other vets that I work with. Uh, usually in other parts of the state, the only uh, vets that uh, I know of are the larger referral hospitals that, that uh, you know, are like the Mayo Clinics of New Jersey, and there are several very good ones that have multidisciplinary departments, cardiology, dermatology, and radiology, and so forth. And you know, I could refer people there if they want the, the, the best uh, cutting-edge hospital, but usually that's not what people are looking for when they just need routine care, and uh, uh, and it's certainly not going to be a cost-effective way to get you know very basic care to go to such a uh, um, you know uh, uh, to a referral hospital that, that's really geared towards uh, dealing with uh, sicker cases, basically. Um, so uh, you know it's, it's, it's how you would find your own doctor: word of mouth, talk to people who you trust. Um, the, the only thing really that doesn't factor into it is whether you're in network or not, because like I said, most people are paying out of pocket. So at least you do have the freedom to go and pick and choose any vet that you want. Um, a lot of people look to online reviews, um, you know, and, uh, um, and and a lot of times there's just only so many options, you know, in your area. So there might be half a dozen vets in your area. So you'll talk to other pet owners, maybe go to the dog park. Uh, talk to uh, some other people who have pets, see which pets they use, if they're happy with them. Uh, and, uh, you know, that, that's how I would do it. So, um, uh, but, yeah, so, you know, I, I do refer people to specific veterinarians when I have experience with them. And when I don't, I just say, look, I just don't have experience in, in your area uh, with the local right. vets there. So you'll have to uh, find out on your own. And uh, just the way you would with your own doctor, you have to find someone who you trust and who uh, uh, is, is recommended by people that you trust. So. Yeah, I think that's the key. I think you've got you've to trust the person. And the same way that, I mean, if you are an avid pet lover and you're doing the right thing, you're responsible with your animals, you want to find a doctor the same way you'd want to find a human doctor that you feel comfortable with, that you can talk to, that, that clearly is up on current medical trends. And oftentimes, you know, people make that decision based upon, like you said, online reviews or comments made by, you know, people that they meet. But also you can, you can see just from an office how archaic or cutting edge the office might be and uh, what 
sort of uh, equipment or techniques the vet's using, and that all factors into, I think, a decision that, you know, whether or not to go with a particular Well, vet. yeah, yes and no. Um, I, I know some excellent vets that, that practice out of um, houses that were converted into veterinary hospitals that are clean but don't necessarily appear state-of-the-art um, and, uh, you know, in terms of the equipment and so forth. And uh, it is very, um, a lot of times the metrics that people are using when they walk into a vet's office to evaluate it, a lot of the things that you just mentioned are the only things that they can use to evaluate it. What does the place physically look like? Um, you know, uh, w- w- how do I feel when I go in there? You know, do they have, uh, you know, seem to be state-of-the-art and so forth. But that doesn't necessarily translate into good medical care. It can, and it's a good start but it doesn't necessarily equate to good medical care. Uh, also, um, part of the reason why we're training hospitals, we like uh, to help new grads uh, uh, become as proficient as possible, so that way when you're going in to get your animal seen by the local vet, if you are seeing a, a new grad, because you know, the day you graduate vet school, you're a licensed vet, and if you pass your exams, you, you can practice, and they can see your dog. Um, you know, so... Um, you, uh, you know, we feel it's part of our mission to help those vets also have as much experience as possible. But having said that, if I were going to a vet, uh, I would like to personally see one that had uh, not just that wasn't a recent grad, because uh, there is no substitute for clinical experience. You know, by definition, you can't get that in veterinary school. You can only get that by actually practicing the profession and and being a vet and seeing and working up cases for a number of years. So. Uh, uh, I would tend to, you know, for shots and basic stuff, yeah, but um, if you have a very serious case, uh, all other things equal. Um, my personal preference is, is to see a vet that has a, a reasonable amount of experience and not someone that just graduated school within the last couple of months. But uh, uh, I would probably be seeing that vet in another year or two uh, if I had a serious case. But uh, that, that's the one caveat, uh, I would say, and uh, it's just because they just don't have the experience yet until they get right. it. It wouldn't be on the top of my list of people I would see, just like if you were getting your knee replaced. I don't think you would have someone do it that was doing it for the first time. So. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. I mean, I, I think <laughs> any professional services, whether it's lawyer, doctor, accountant, vet, it's the same thing. There is no, uh, there's no substitute for experience, hands-on experience, and, and that's – uh, I think critical. So yeah, absolutely, I agree with that. Um, all right, the next thing I want to talk about before we end the show today, I want to talk about the legal obligations of pet owners. And clearly, there's obligations to um, license and register your pets. Um, I think that you would agree that spaying and neutering pets is also an obligation. Is that true? Uh, yeah, in almost all cases, uh, you know, you know, I, I feel it's there's a couple of reasons. Uh, um, you know, there's the animal's health, um, which uh, uh, spaying and neutering uh, is protective against many diseases um, like breast cancer in dogs and so forth. So I feel, from a medical standpoint, um, it, it is uh, a good idea to get your pet altered. Although, um, you know, there is some controversy about how much protection you get from it. So. Um, but, um, you know, uh, you know the, 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 I could speak an hour about the benefits and, and, uh, and uh, uh, 
flip side of, of altering your pet uh, from a medical standpoint, but that's not really what the show is about. But overall speaking, from a medical standpoint, I firmly believe that it's a good thing to do. Uh, right. But um, we also have uh, the population issue where you have, uh, you know, in some parts of New Jersey, 70, 80% of cats that end up in shelters are getting euthanized, and maybe 30% of dogs that end up in shelters are getting euthanized. And uh, uh, so, so uh, you know, to, to, um, and most, uh, about half of, half of household litters are unplanned. You know, people thought, uh, oh, I didn't think my dog would mate with its sister, you know, and then, boom, they have six or eight more right. dogs, you know, and they just can't take care of them all, so they end up in the shelter, and then, um, you know, uh, two or three or four of those dogs are put down, or, right. you know, um, or, or, or maybe half of them, you know, it could be, uh, you know, a lot. So, uh, and with cats, the numbers are even higher than that, you know, the cats, you know, have a litter, and then uh, they, they bring them to the shelter, and they just can't place them all, so uh, uh, we, we feel that it's a, it's a social responsibility for owners to, to uh, not contribute to that problem, and that's part of the reason also why we strongly encourage people to, to get them spayed and neutered. Right. Now, expanding upon that, you know, you also have legal obligations, so let's, let's talk about dog owners, for example. Um, you know, there are things that you as a dog owner need to know about, and we're going to talk quickly about two uh, dog bite laws, one in New York and one in New Jersey, and then I want to get your take on it and give some advice to people as to what they can do. But um, the law in New Jersey is a one-bite rule, and it says, essentially, that if you're bitten by somebody else's dog, as long as you can prove that you're not the owner, right, that somebody else was the owner, that you were bitten, and that you were bitten while you were either on public property or you were lawfully permitted to be on the dog owner's property, you can sue that dog owner for all of your damages, pain and suffering, medical, whatever it might be. Now, compare that to New York, which says that you have to prove in order to collect pain and suffering that the dog had a vicious propensity towards violence. So in other words, in New York, if you get bitten by a dog, you can recover some of your medical fees, but you can't sue for pain and suffering. And sometimes dog bites are, are fatal, depending upon the dog, and you've got to prove vicious propensity. Uh, unlike New Jersey, which is if you get bitten and you can prove it and you're on public property or lawfully on the property of the owner, you can recover for all those damages. Now, Dog owners in New York, I understand, Dr. Crumman, that you work out of New Jersey, but if we could just give you know, maybe some thought to the idea of, of vicious propensity, I think a lot of times people will say, well, it's a dog breed, and that's not what the law says. The law says that you have to know or should know that you have a history of violence with your pet. Um, do you agree or disagree that it's not necessarily the breed but rather the individual animal that has a violent propensity. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. That that, that uh, um, there are breed predilections towards everything. I mean, you know, uh, King Charles Cavalier Spaniel, which is sitting right in front of me right now, has a propensity to uh, enlarged heart disease. Um, but um, you know, I, I would, I think, I do think that it's fair to say that there are certain breeds that have um, higher propensities to bite. 
and you know that's borne out by the statistics. And it's not always pit bulls or Rottweilers or anything like that. In fact, uh, a lot of the small breed dogs, like Chihuahuas, and uh, in particular, um, uh, you, you know, are the most likely to bite. Believe it or not, they're not most likely to cause a fatal bite because it's still a Chihuahua. And, you know, it's limited in terms of the damage it can do. But some, right. some of these small breed dogs actually do, do a lot, uh, bite a lot more. So, um, and, and I've just, so, so, you know, to go to the obvious example, which is pit bulls, uh, I, I've just seen so many which, that are so sweet that that'll just lick your face off um, that, uh, you know, I, I don't like putting a blanket judgment on any specific breed. Um, having said that, I've also seen ones that, that, that um, you, know, uh, you know, really are not suitable as pets for anybody because they're so vicious and they need to be muzzled whenever they come into the office. And sometimes even the owner can barely handle the dog, and those dogs are just dangerous. And it doesn't necessarily matter whether it's a golden retriever or a pit bull or a rottweiler or, you know, uh, Weimaranger or any other dog, um, you know, uh, if it's an aggressive dog, it's an aggressive dog, and I do think it should be determined on a case-by-case basis and not by what breed it is. Right. Now, when you see those dogs like that, I mean, you as a vet know that this dog is aggressive, and the owner must know or should know, and that, you know, translates, in New York at least, that uh, that would be a scenario where, you know, you would be able to prove if you were bitten that the dog had a violent propensity or vicious propensity because not only did you, the vet, know it, but how could the owner not know that this was an aggressive dog? And so those are cases, that's how you prove, more or less, that a dog had a vicious propensity. But that's New York, New Jersey, it doesn't make a difference. So if you get bitten in New Jersey, you know, you're able to sue. But what would you recommend to pet owners of dogs, let's let's stick with dogs for a second, um, who have a little bit either more aggressive dog or they're just a bigger, more powerful dog. Because obviously no pet owner wants to be sued and they don't want their dog to attack anybody else. Is there anything that you can you can say advice wise concerning controlling your dog or making sure that you're protecting the the public from your animal? Yeah. Um the the only way to protect the public uh, from your animal is to keep your animal away from the public if it's that dangerous. Uh, but you know there could always potentially be a situation where the dog gets out, or someone like you said lawfully is on your property, a repair person or something, or or the dog gets gets free somehow or whatever. Um, you know, so um, you know I, I really don't think it's wise to have a a, a dog that's dangerous. Uh, you know, as a pet. Um, you know, uh, you know, unless it's, uh, you know, and even if if it's a guard dog, it shouldn't be dangerous. It should be trained to to, to act as a guard dog, but but you know, still under control, uh, and and know you know when when to guard and, and not guard. But you know, we're not really talking about guard dogs here. We're talking about uh, uh, you know, just aggressive pets. Um, and uh, yeah, um, you know, you know, I've gone to a lot of lectures, uh, continuing education lectures and seminars on all kinds of medical issues, but also very often uh, with behaviorists, board-certified veterinary behaviorists, and they very often deal with uh, aggression. And uh, it is in the knee-jerk reaction when you see a dog like that in your office to refer it to an animal behaviorist or dog trainer to try to get it under better control. But I think uh, even the dog trainers and the behaviorists will all pretty much agree that if an animal has a history of this sort of thing, that there's no medication or amount of training that is going to guarantee that your animal is not going to continue to be dangerous. It may be improved to some degree and less likely to bite, but once you have that kind of history, um, 
it's it's really hard to 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 have any type. It's impossible to have any. Even even in a dog that's never bit, it's, you never have a million percent guarantee that it would never bite anybody. And one that has a history of it, certainly you have that risk. So, uh, um, you know, and since it's very hard to get rid of those tendencies, uh, and I would certainly wouldn't recommend if you have a dog like that putting it up for adoption, because then you're just giving that problem and putting someone else at risk. Um, yeah. So uh, there are some very rare cases, and I can count on one hand after practicing 15 years, uh, and not even using all my fingers on one hand, but um, but I can count on one hand, not using all my fingers, a number of cases where uh, a dog has been put to sleep by the owner because it uh, uh, developed aggressive tendencies. Sometimes it, it, they were very nice owners; it was just the dog. Other times, the, the owner contributes to it by, uh, you know, you know, abuse or whatever. But uh, right. regardless of how it started, if the dog, uh, you know, is it becoming dangerous, uh, the, there are those handful of cases that we put down. One, one was heartbreaking. Uh, it was a Bichon Frise that the uh, couple could handle, and they, but they knew it was very nippy. And then when the wife got pregnant and they had a little infant in the house, they had to put it down, and we were all in tears. Um, because they love the dog and it was five or six years old, but uh, you know the dog could be good 99.999% of the time. But uh, you know if that point one percent of the time is yeah. biting someone, you know it's like saying uh, yep. you know Charles, you know or, you know someone could could be nice 99.9% of the time and and commit homicide with a gun. That point one percent, then that, that that takes all the bets off, you know. So yeah, if the right. dog's nice most of the time, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean anything if it has a propensity to violence. So or aggression, so uh, um, there are cases where, where a dog just is not uh, a suitable pet and it becomes a danger. Um, I'm not a legal expert on it, but, but, but I, I think if it's not suitable for you, you know, sometimes they try to give it to a, you know, uh, maybe that dog, the Bichon, could have give, been given to a very strict, you know, one-person owner, uh, right. you know, maybe an older guy or something that could handle the dog if they found such an owner, but uh, you know, I think in that situation it was right to put the dog down because it was so nasty. Yeah, and I think from a legal standpoint, I think you have to just use common sense and act as a reasonable person would under under the circumstances. Um, we are running out of time, and I want to give uh, Dr. Croman a chance to get the address, website, and phone number out there again. So if you would, uh, Dr. Croman, People for Animals... Yeah, People for Animals, um, our main clinic is in Hillside, New Jersey, and we have a smaller satellite clinic in Robbinsville uh, down outside of Trenton. Um, And um, we're a spay and neuter clinic. We're the largest in the state. We also offer um, uh, uh, wellness services that I mentioned earlier, vaccines and so forth uh, on a certain schedule. Um, Our address is 401 Hillside Avenue in Hillside, New Jersey. That's our main clinic. Uh, the phone is 973-282-0890. Again, 973-282-0890. Or you can find us. You can even schedule a spay and neuter online uh, at our website, which is www.pfaonline.org. That's People for Animals. So www.pfaonline.org. All right, Dr. David Crumman, thank you very much for being with us today. Uh, I, I appreciate your insight and your comments. I know our listeners do, too. I do encourage uh, everyone to go check out the website. Um, look at the neuter scooter. It's, it's very unique and innovative, so I encourage everyone to do that. I'd like to uh, thank everyone for joining me today, and we will be back with more legal and business news. If you have any questions or wish to discuss a legal issue, 
uh, please give us a call. Our direct office number is 973-949-3770, or you can email me at info, that's I-N-F-O, at PeterLamontESQ.com. Until next time, I'd like to thank you for joining me, and remember that there's power in understanding the law.